you're in the interview with Reviews and Done. What's up, world? Once again, it's your boy, Derek Dunn, back with another interview for Reviews and Done. Now, my guest today is a very accomplished actor, an MC, a voiceover artist, just an all-around talented brother. You've seen this brother in movies like Notorious. He's currently starring on Carl Weber's The Family Business. I mean, he's one of those cats who you turn on a movie and you see his face, but you don't know who he is. But today, we're going to learn all about who this brother is. And my guest today is none other than Mr. Dennis L.A. White. So welcome to the line, Mr. Dennis L.A. White. How you doing hey, today, thank sir? You. I'm great, man. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's my blessing, man, you know. Big fan, going all the way back to uh, Notorious back in 09 when you played uh, D-Rock. D-Rock, just yeah. Researching your um, accomplishments, man, you know, I had no idea that I've been supporting your work for so long. I had no idea, you know, that it was you. So we're going to get into all that inside the uh, interview. But before we get into sure. your stuff, you know, i got to ask you one of the hard questions, you know, up front. So... You know, okay. tonight's tonight, man. We got another versus battle. It's going to be um, DMX versus Snoop. So who's your money on for that for that battle tonight? <laughs> man, I mean, look, I'm a fan of both of the brothers, but it's really no question. Like, Snoop Dogg, his body of work is too extensive. You know, and I love X. I know X. I know, I know Snoop. So I have no favoritism, but... Um, I just feel like Snoop has his he has his catalog is crazy, and DMX has some really bangers, but his his catalog is not as extensive as Snoop Dogg. The stuff that Snoop did with Pharrell, you know, I mean, his first album alone was was a classic. Um, you know, and Snoop has just man, it's just no way that DMX can can compete with with Snoop Dogg at all. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm gonna agree. I'm gonna go with um, Snoop. I mean, just you know, you can recall, you know, when we were younger, DMX, you know, had the game on lock for like that '98 to about I say 2001 run where he was just unstoppable. Yeah. I think with Snoop's guest appearances and with Snoop's later catalog, especially when you get into the stuff with Pharrell, you know, the stuff he did with um, No Limit, yeah, it's, it's I don't think it's going to be a watch, but, yeah, I'm definitely rocking with, uh, rocking with Snoop. So it's going to be a trying to see I, I like Snoop, and, Snoop and 50 Cent would have been a better battle. Yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted to see. But we shall see. So speaking on uh, Snoop, you know, you grew up out in Southern California, and what do you recall about your childhood out there? And who was the first celebrity you can recall running to or meeting, you know, in your early days in Southern California? Wow. Uh, so, okay, I was born in Southern California, but I I grew up in Northern California. Uh, I'm a military brat, so my father was in the Air Force. So we moved to Travis Air Force Base um, when I was, I, I don't know, like a year or two or something like that. And that's where I uh, grew up. Um, so my very first celebrity I met was Cab Calloway, old school, um, artist Cab Calloway. I was at the airport and growing up, I used to love watching those old movies, Cab Calloway, 
Louis Armstrong, uh, Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby. Like, I was just one of those kids who would watch all those old movies. So we was at the airport picking up uh, my cousin, and I saw him, and I ran over to him. And, you know, he was surprised that I knew who he was. You know, my parents were surprised, too. But that's the very first celebrity I met. Um, yeah, that was the very first one. And then I met James Cleveland, the gospel great, um, because he knew he was close to my mom and my, my uncle. But, yeah, Cap Calloway. Shout out to your pops, man, for uh, his service. I'm also a military brat and an Air Force vet myself. Okay. So, you know, yeah. pops, thank, you yeah. for, uh, thank you for your service. Now, you mentioned, you mentioned your mom. Cap Calloway knew, knew who she was, and just for the folks who might not know who your mom is, I know that she's Grammy nominated. Can you share with us who your mom was and her contributions to the music industry? Yes, uh, my mom. Her name is Becky White. She uh, she wrote for a lot of lot of um, notable gospel artists. She wrote for James Cleveland. Um, she wrote for John P. Key, Hezekiah Walker, Wilmington Chester. Um, she wrote for a lot of people. She's still right. Uh, but so I, at, at an early age, I, I got into the, the whole gospel music industry, just being around and, and learning and studying. Cool, cool. So as we just both said, you know, we're both military brats. So, you know, with, with being a military brat, there comes the move. So you had a chance to move to North Carolina when your dad PCS and North yeah. Carolina rediscovered your love for acting and music. Well, I was always as a kid doing plays, um, talent shows, uh, theater, poetry. Always, I was doing that and playing sports. So, you know, as I when I moved to North Carolina, I was about thirteen, fourteen years. Yeah, I was thirteen years old. So, in my young teen age, I was still doing theater. I was doing a lot of plays in North Carolina taking theater classes in school, forensics. Um, I just was really inundated with the arts. Nice. And you grew up playing um, baseball, correct? Yeah, I played baseball. I played basketball. I just didn't grow tall enough to continue my basketball career, so I stuck with baseball, which was, you know, I was really good in baseball. That was like my, my bread and butter. And initially, you were going to do the um, – you had a scholarship to play baseball, but you decided to pursue academics instead, right? Yeah, I had a, I had an athletic scholarship, a full ride to play baseball, and then I had a, a full academic scholarship at another school. And so I chose the other school because I felt like they were going to get a baseball program and I was just going to, you know, transfer over, but they never did. And I'm actually, I'm kind of glad. You know, I went to HBCU, went to Salem State University. Um, the other school was, was a predominantly uh, white college. And, you know, I got a lot of heritage from going to my HBCU, so I really appreciate that. Cool, cool. So one of the things I was surprised to learn about you was that you were an MC, and I had no idea that you were an MC and actually released an album. So folks, yeah. this man was known as... Dennis the Menace, and yeah. his debut was The Wonderful World of Dennis. Now, I haven't heard your debut, unfortunately, but what was the vibe you were going for with your album when it dropped 
back in 2001, if I'm not mistaken. That was many moons ago. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was doing music, you know, throughout the time, you know, but I moved to the Washington, D.C., and I ended up doing a play playing, uh, portraying Tupac Shakur. The play was called The Seventh Son. And so um, with that energy, I was just in a mix. I was like, I need to, I, you know, I want to record. So I met a producer, Dark Gable, and he had a label, and we just really got into just recording songs. I recorded a lot of songs. And my, my concept was if I never get a chance to record ever again, I wanted to say everything I wanted to say. And so, you know, I had party songs. I had, you know, I had a lot of hip, like real hip-hop songs, R&B, ting songs. Like, I, I, I really switched it up, uh, flipped it up a lot. My first single was called Buster, and my second one was Fits the Description, uh, talk about police brutality. And um, it, was just, it was a really good album. It was on the Billboard charts for a while. Uh, we got a, got a lot of love, you know, and it was it was definitely a breath breath of fresh air. So you know, since you mentioned my home my home area, the DMV, DC, okay. you know, I'm not in Northern VA, but you know, DC was always you know hangout spots. You know, I mean, I got to ask you, what are your thoughts on go go music? And did you ever get a chance to hit up the Ritz when you were out here? What the Ritz was over oh, the shit, bro. Yeah, the wrist was, was popping. Uh, I love go-go music. I mean, you know, it's, you, get a more, you get a better appreciation for it when you go to a go-go, go-go party, then you really get that feel for it. Um, you know, most of the country got introduced to it by EU doing the butt, you know, but the real D.C., you know, vibe and, and those go-go parties, oh, man, they crazy off the chain, yo. So I, I loved it. I lived in D.C. about a year and a half, and I really had a strong affinity for it. Yeah, man, the Ritz was the uh, was the spot back in my day, you know, because the Ritz was um, 18 and up. So when I was in high school, everyone would always go to the Ritz when you turned 18, and this was back in 99. So yeah. I'm 39. So yeah, a lot the of old people always tell me, like, man, before the, Ritz, before the Ritz, you know, became 18 and up, that spot, man, used to be so upscale. And um, you probably remember, man, going to the Ritz, they always had that long-ass line to get in. Oh. And, like, in the, in the wintertime, like, you would, you know, shorties would be – in line, and these short-ass skirts just shivering, trying to get in, and the bouncers wouldn't let them in for they nothing. <laughs> Yo, so I, I met this dude uh, about almost a year ago who was a bouncer. No, and he worked. No, he worked the door at at the Ritz. And I remember him because I would go, and he wouldn't let me in. Sometimes, sometimes he let me in. I come back, he wouldn't let me in, and sometimes he let me in. You know, so it was that thing, like, if you got in the Ritz after standing in line or trying to cut the line, you finally get in, you're like, oh, tonight's going to be on. <laughs> yeah, the Ritz was the um, spot. Well, I mean, really all the clubs in D.C., man, you had so many. And, um, you know, I would always tell folks when I was in the Air Force, I'm like, if you're ever coming back from a deployment and you happen to stop, you know, get a layover in D.C., and it's during Howard's homecoming, just rent a car, 
go to Howard and just hang yeah. out in your car. You need to get out. That's, just just, just yeah, hang out in your car. You're going to see so many things walking by. And if you go to a club, you know, you got to go to the Ritz or you got to go to, at the time, it was Dream. You know, Republic Gardens? I never had a chance to attend Republic Gardens. Okay. But now it's, it's um, uh, Mark Barnes' new club. I, I can't remember the name of the club right now in D.C. Oh, man. But, yeah, homecoming in Howard is everything. I go every year. Yes, sir. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's something you got to experience at least um, at least once, just to say that you've uh, done it, be it a concert, be it the step show. You know, you got you got to do Howard's homecoming at least one time yeah. in your the life. Part. If you're going to BCU or even if you're in the area, just go hang out at least once. So yeah, it's always cool to talk to somebody to actually live the culture in um you know in the DMV area, be it uh DC, Maryland. Or VA, but you know one of the craziest things about this area though is mm-hmm. yeah, Baltimore, which is like about maybe sixty, maybe forty-five minutes to an hour away from DC. Yeah, two different worlds, different mindset, different style of dress, different slang, different everything. Taking a step further with um Richmond, you know, which is a bit further south, different mindset, different way of life from Northern Virginia, you know, where I'm based at. So, yeah, mm. cool, man. Like, I had no idea you were out here. Yeah. So, another one my son is in Howard right now. My son, he, he's, he's, he's going to be a junior at Howard. Cool. And Shout out to him. I'll be in D.C. for the, um, hopefully we'll have the Million Man March in, in August. Yeah. I think it's still going to happen, um, Pending, um, you know, this COVID, everything's going on. I still think it will happen. If not, hopefully something happens. Um, you know, because it's needed right now. Everything going on in the country. You know, my my son's been asking me to um to do something. You know, I'm still kind of skeptical just with everything going on with the COVID and all that. It's taking him, but he's um adamant about going to the one like so much. And I might take him to that one. We got to see. What yeah. So you do the album, you're doing acting here and there, and around 01, I'm going to show my age again, you book a hosting gig on Fuse TV. Now, Fuse TV, folks, is what, if I'm not mistaken, Spike TV used to be way back in the day. We're talking like 19, 20-plus years ago. So how did you get the gig as a host on Fuse TV? Well, when I moved to New York, I was one of those those kids that was always at Times Square where MTV was, and I would, you know, try and get on their shows. So I started getting on their shows and, um, like, dancing on their shows, and they would let me, you know, go to commercials and stuff like that. And, you know, I was on Say What Karaoke. Uh, I was on a show called um, – um, Stung, it was a like a punk-type show with Red Man and Method Man, so I was in that realm, and so I was walking, true story, just walking down the street, and this this girl comes up to me and says, yo, uh, you want to audition for this TV show? And I was like, yeah, whatever. She's like, no, seriously, we're auditioning right now. I'm like, all right, cool. So I went up to this building. I always, you know, at the time, I had my headshots with me at all times. And so they had me audition and talk about myself, 
I, I spit, I rhymed a little bit, did some things, and they had me for a callback. And I went to the callback. It was a 1,000 people. It was crazy, 1,000 people. They had me. They moved me to the front. I went in and auditioned, and um, they loved me. And so I had another audition, and it was it was messed up because it was the weather was kind of funny, and so my train, I was living in Brooklyn, was kind of off, and so I got there late. And so when I got there, there they were already doing auditions, about about eight people there, and um, I didn't get it. They picked uh, the other th- three hosts, and then they called me a week later. It was like, oh, Dennis, we really like your energy, so we, we're doing a pilot. We want you to come. We can't promise you anything, but, you know, just make sure you're there on time. And so I went there, and, and I killed it, and that's how I got to be uh, a host on Fuse. What was the show that you hosted on um, Fuse? Say it again. What What was the show you hosted on Fuse? Um, it was called IMX. Uh, so it was like a music exchange show. It was kind of like a TRL, and uh, then daily download. So what it was, it was a we came on every day from like six or seven, I believe, live TV show with studio audience and celebrities and, and, you know, millions of viewers. And I was the only black dude on there. So it was like, like crazy for me. And, um, like we interviewed Marilyn Manson, uh, 50 cent before the day before get Richard die trying came out. He came on our show, interviewed him, um, ludicrous, uh, usher. Like we, we interviewed everybody. It's funny because that's how, I became really good friends with a lot of these artists from back then, Buster Rhymes from, from back then, Pharrell from back then. Dope. Man, yeah, man. Speaking of 50, man, do you remember, man, how just big that Give Us Your Guy Trying movement was back Ooh. in 03 when that joint yeah. dropped? Crazy. It was so crazy that we couldn't – we were, we're not allowed to let people know that he was coming on our show because of the whole beef with Murder, Inc. So it was like we couldn't tell anybody. We couldn't advertise it. Uh, we couldn't have a studio audience. We had extra security around. And, you know, he came in, and it was all love. It was all good. But we couldn't even announce it because of how scared the studios were. He took over the music industry. And being in New York, like, he had New York in a stranglehold. Yeah, I mean, it was a, <laughs> it was a crazy time. I can remember when that when joint dropped, I was working a uh, a mid-shift, and I got off at um, 6 in the morning. So I'm like, I get mm-hmm. off, and I had, a, I had a plan to go to Target and buy it, you know, from Target, because Target had the, um, you know, exclusive DVD back in the day. So, yeah. you know, 6 o'clock, I get off. I think I went to IHOP to get some breakfast, and I get to Target by 8.05, 8.05 in the morning. Mind you, I'm in northern VA. So nowhere we know where Dom is at. Get to the joint, man. They are totally sold out by eight ten on a Tuesday. And oh, three couldn't 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 get the CD. I I didn't get that album until that Saturday when the next shipment came in. So yeah, that fifty thing was like just crazy. Like you had never seen nothing. To me, I hadn't seen anything like that for you know, someone of, of a newer artist since Doggy Style back in 93 to where, like, you know, you couldn't keep it in stock. So, yeah, shout yeah. out to 50. Yeah, he, he shut it down, man. 
So following your Fuse gig, you know, you start doing the voiceover work. That's something I was surprised to learn about was two of my favorite games from my time in the Air Force you played a part in. So you did voiceover work in The Warriors and voiceover work in Def Jam, Fight for New York. Now, Def Jam, Fight for New York, that joint, when, when I tell you cats in the Air Force, we were overseas, we'll play that joint for hours. I mean, we would, like, start playing, go to the club, and then come back after the club and keep on playing. Def Jam, Fight for New York is probably one of the best games, hip-hop related, in my opinion, of all mm. time. So yeah. how was the experience doing the voiceover work for, for the Warriors and Def, Def Jam, Fight for New York? Well, let me tell you how I got Def Jam, how I got on that. So Kevin Lyles, he used to be a music executive at Def Jam. He came on our show, and we were that whole week we were – promoting the video the first one and um you know we had all the all the artists and that's how Ludacris came on a lot of people came on and so he came on that friday and we me and him made a bet that if i beat him in the video game then he would make me a character and so we played live on air and i beat him at like it was like you couldn't stage it even better but the last 30 seconds of the show i i beat him and so they made me a character um, in the video game. And so it was, you know, action capture. So I had to go. They put all this thing on my body for me to move around. It was so incredible. And so that was great. And then with the Warriors video game, it was more intense. Like, it was the whole body suit. And, you know, I, I, I'm, in, I'm a couple characters, different voices and a couple characters on, in the Warriors video game. But that was so the, – the technology was amazing. Yeah, at Warriors joint, too, that was, that was another one that, um, you know, I would play, you know, for hours on end. And I even um, – I ended up acquiring another PS2 recently. And, um, you know, I still had all my games. From the, from the PS2, so the Warriors one of the first ones I showed my son on PS2 was the Warriors and Def Jam, Fight for Your North. So, so thank you for playing a part in two classic games that are were part of my 20s and now they're part of my son's, you know, preteen years. So your career is moving along. You start getting extra work, and in 2007, you had a chance to be an extra in I think I Love My Wife which was one of was Chris Rock's second directorial movie, and The Brave One, starring Jodie Foster and Terrence Howard. Did you ever get a chance to chop it up with Chris Rock or Terrence on those sets? Well, actually, I wasn't an extra in those movies. So with uh, Chris Rock, I think I love my wife. Uh, it's funny because I had a line, at a, like a little, couple lines, and – it was him walking out of the club, and I bumped into him, and I was like, move, bitch, get out the way. And um, Chris loved it, but the studio thought it was too harsh, so they didn't use that, that the voiceover that just showed me bumping into him and everything. Uh, but I wasn't an extra in that one, and I definitely wasn't an extra in the Brave one. Um, the Brave one was a very uh, – it was a pivotal role in my career. Um because it was a studio film, you know, I was acting with um, um, Terrence Howard and Jodie Foster was the lead in it. So I, my scene 
that I had was a very intense scene with Jodie Foster. And um, it made a commercial, and it was a very pivotal scene. And, and that really, that, that's, that role really took my career to a different level um, more than, you know, anything before that. Because, once again, it was a studio film, and I'm, I'm having a scene, powerful scene with an uh, uh, Oscar winner. And, um, you know, so me and Terrence Howard, we, you know, we were cool, but Jodie Foster, she really is the one that changed my whole perspective on acting because I saw how intense and how focused she was, and I knew I had to mirror that energy for, or she was going to, you know, kill me acting-wise on camera, so I had to combat it, and it, it came off very, very well. Cool, yeah, man. I think I need to revisit, man. I don't think I've seen the Brave one since it came out. That's, that's why I probably yeah. I probably forgot about Sharon seeing me. Yeah, I haven't seen that joint, man, since it was in theaters back in '07. So I need to I need to revisit that joint. So if you oh, haven't seen the Brave one, dope movie, kind of like a female spin on um, Death Wish. But, yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, it was it really did well. What was funny is that at the premiere. You know, well, I don't want to give it away, but, <laughs> but at at the when there was something that happened to my character, the whole um, theater cheered. They were like, they really was against my character, which was really funny. Uh, we had the after party, and uh, Robert Downey Jr. His wife was one of the producers on it, and he was there, and he came up to me, which is crazy because I was a big fan of Robert uh, Downey Jr. since Less Than Zero, and he. He broke down my character. He loved. He's like, I love your character, and just broke down my character like no other. It was amazing, and so um, that particular role helped me to get notorious. Actually, all right. Before we, before we get into notorious, my man took it back to one of my favorite Downey Jr. performances. Also, Less Than Zero. And if you folks have never seen, um, you know, who you might know as Iron Man, check out. Robert Downey Jr. Less than zero to really see that cat's range. Because yeah. the, the way he played a drug addict to be so young, uh, you know, personal, personal, personal issues aside, like he nailed being a drug addict, you know, in less than zero. I mean, Oscar worthy performance in a, you know, otherwise 80s teen film. So something else to add to list, folks, if you've never seen it, check out Less Than Zero. Definitely. All right, so let's go ahead and um, let's get into Notorious, where, you know, you played Damien B-Rock Butler, who we all know is Biggie's best friend. Now, Notorious, to me, is still a great film. I think it gets a lot of um, slack, but listening to the commentary, watching um, Derek Luke as Diddy, just with the mannerisms, watching... Um, Jamal Willard as Biggie, just like the way that he portrayed Biggie, the ticks in his voice and the stuff that he mm-hmm. was, um, you know, doing. And then even the little, you know, nuances like uh, the red hat um, with the lumberjack to match. Then it's in the list. Mm-hmm. Like it all made it all made sense. And so I got to ask, how did you um, research playing D Rock? for the role and, and how excited were you to actually get that role? Oh man, it was, it was crazy because when I heard about Notorious, you know, casting, 
you know, I was hearing rumblings that there was Andre Harrell role, so I wanted to play Andre. So, you know, I, I did um, I did voiceover work for the movie Honey, and he was a producer on it. So I was, yo, Dre, what's up, man? I want to, you know, I would love to play you, blah, blah, blah. So, but that never, they never really showed Andre. It was D-Rock that came up, and, you know, I, I never heard of D-Rock before, you know, the movie. And so I tried to do as much research. He was incarcerated at the time, so I couldn't speak to him directly. Um, so what I did was I had a friend that was incarcerated as well. So I went up, you know, to see him upstate, kick with him a couple of times, just kind of get that energy. And then I had transcripts from, you know, them interviewing him and little C's was with me like every day. It just really, him and Nino just really giving me a lot of insight on D-Rock and, you know, a lot of stuff that he did and who he was. And so with all that was this energy that, that, um, I, I put together. You know, and what people don't understand about Notorious, Notorious was an independent film. It wasn't through Fox. It was through Fox Searchlight, which was an independent company. And so our budget was a lot lower than, you know, the other biopics. And we had a lot of restraints that most people didn't have. And and was other than um, Eminem's movie, you know, we were, like, pretty much one of the first biopics kind of of hip-hop so there was a lot of things that we couldn't do um you know a week or two before it came out they snatched away like almost a thousand theaters because they didn't think that it was going to be a hit so they were trying to you know uh, make sure they didn't lose out on their investment and then we sold out every theater and then they were like oh my god we didn't know and then, but they made their money back, so they were good. And so we, we had a lot of obstacles to put that movie out. Um, but I, it paved the way for a lot of, you know, uh, of biopics from the Tupac biopic from, you know, NWA biopic. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy for it. Yeah, classic, uh, classic joint, man. I mean, even the scene with um, yourself and Jamal as Biggie and, you know, you take the bid for him because you, like, you just knew that he was going to become a star. Just to, like the dialogue between you two and the um, – how can I – what I'm looking for? Almost like the, the hesitation on Jamal's part, but you're like the big brother, you know, big up in your man saying, nah, like, you know, you're going to be somebody. I'm going to take this bid for you. You have more stuff, you know, that you can accomplish. Man, that was some real shit. Like me yeah. and Holmes were like, like, you can really tell that, D-Rock was his, um, had his man's back, you know, through and through. And, you know, unless you're like a diehard Biggie fan, you didn't know who D-Rock was. And like, you know, they rarely spoke on D-Rock mm-hmm. that I can recall, you know, back in the day in the Source magazines or Vibe magazine, whatever you want to read. Now, I had read um, Chio's book, Unbelievable, prior to movie like years ago. So I mean I kinda knew who D Rock was, but I didn't know like it was that their friendship was that deep. So yeah, notorious, classic joint. Yeah. So yeah, you know, uh for for D Rock to have that mentality, you know, it was very powerful. For him to take a bid for someone else, you know, is 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 what true friendship is about, especially with the snitching culture that's going on right now. 
Yeah, I got one question about the Torres that I kind of heard. There was a a rumor saying how they wanted to include um, the Biggie and the Jay-Z characters in a small context. But they, I guess they both said it was kind of too painful to go back to that time when they were in high school and they didn't want to take away, you know, from big stories. So they both turned down, you know, a chance for their characters to be in the movie. Can you confirm or deny that? I can't confirm or deny that, but what I can say is that, you know, if you're just a regular person who works from nine to five, you work for UPS or, you know, you work at McDonald's, it's really impossible to tell your full life story in two hours. You know, there's so many different facets of every person. So especially with someone as, as who had as much going on with big, it was no way we could go back all the way to high school and, and really build, you know, that story. And then there's so many parts of his life that we, we were unable to really talk about. Charlie Baltimore, you know, we couldn't really go into depth with that. Um, him, his relationship with Jay-Z, you definitely couldn't go into that. So it was a lot, you know, that we really couldn't do um, because we didn't have no time. It was a five-hour movie, then possibly. But for to fit all that in in two hours, it was impossible. Well, once again, classic joint. So after Notorious, you know, you're doing a lot of work. Um, one of my favorites was um, Changing the Game. Mm. And if you folks have never seen Changing the Game, that's another dope street flick, but it has a, it has a positive message to it. And yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but, um, you know, there's a twist ending with your character in Changing the Game. Were you surprised when you read the script that your character got that awesome the ending for your character? Yeah, yeah. And that's one thing that I really I really love because I had an opportunity to uh to play the lead and you know, that was one of the characters that I could have read for, but I liked my character so Dre, I liked it so much. I'm like, this is the role I want to play. And, you know, with Tony Todd, the candy man being involved and, you know, Sticky Fingers was in it. Uh, we had a really good cast, and it was a, a lot of turns and, and, you know, the study of Machiavelli was really the principles, the underlining principle of this film. And, I, you know, it was a, a cult classic. I get a lot of people who, who, who've seen it and really loved it. And it's it, the twist was crazy. Like, the twist was really, really crazy. Go check that right out, too, folks. Changing the game. So my brother, like, you know, you get versatile, and you show up on the joint Parenthood, the NBC show, playing Mr. Ray. So what was that audition process like? Yeah, that was, like, the craziest audition because I was in in North Carolina in the hood, like, um, out in the sticks, and I was recording uh, some music. I was at a studio. And so I was there for like a week just recording, and my agent hit me was like, uh, you got an audition uh, in Cali. You can, you know, I'm like, well, I'm not in Cali right now. Like, well, you can send a tape. So I shot the, my audition tape at the studio, and I had like some guys that was in the studio, and I had them as my, my goons and, and everything. And they love, NBC loved it so much, and they cast me strictly directly from that tape, audition tape and they casted my homies in it as well. They were like, we want them too. We want them to be your crew. We fly them all out to, to L.A. and everything. And so um, 
two of my homies, you know, they they real in the street, so they wasn't really <laughs> they wasn't really trying to do that. So uh, one of them was one of them came, and then I got two other of my homies. One of my co- homies, uh, uh, you know, from from Cali. One I was in North Carolina. I got them, my big homies, and they came in, and they all were in um, in the episode with me, and they all got you know they're SAG eligible to get in the guild and got paid and flew out and everything. So that's that was so amazing, you know. They and the executives for the show was just like, Dennis, we, whatever you want to do with this character, however you want to rock it, it's all you. And I was like, really? You know, I'm thinking, oh, it's NBC. I got to, you know, toe the line. They're like, however you want to play it, whatever. And they gave me a, a long, long leash. Cool. Shout out to um, NBC for Parenthood. That's, that's something else that I'm, I'm debating, binging from, Start. I watched season one of uh, mm-hmm. Parenthood, and then I, I kind of lost interest. But um, I mean, you were you know you were on there. A pre Creed Michael B Jordan was on there. Yeah, that uh, lovely, lovely Miss Joy Bryant was on Parenthood. So yeah, I need to go back and revisit uh, uh-huh. Parenthood. Great, great show. And Jesse I, Smollett. See, I don't know. I don't know. He was on there. No, I'm sorry. His sister, Journey. Journey. Oh yeah, not cool, ju- cool. Not juicy, Smollett. Not <laughs> juicy, but journey. <laughs> All right, so you're doing your thing, and in 2014, you you bless the highly underrated classic series, Black Dynamite, with your voice talent for an episode. So I gotta ask, man, because Black Dynamite, man, the show, I'd be crying, like laughing so hard. So when you were doing the voiceover work. Was it a challenge to keep a straight face read, reading the lines and recording the lines? Oh, hilarious! Because my so in high school, um, I grad, I went to school with Atheon Crockett and Carl Jones. Carl Jones was the executive producer of Black Dynamite, and so working in the studio with him doing voiceovers was was hilarious because he would. He would give me some lines, and I would say it, and he'd be busting out laughing. We had to like stop, like "Come on, Carl," or I'll bust out laughing. It was it was so funny. The writing was just so you know out the box. So I had a blast. I love doing voiceover work. It's so fun. Yeah, man, Black Dynamite, man, Black Dynamite, the Boondocks, like just too highly underrated um black cartoons. Thinking about Black Dynamite yeah. now, man. I'm, just sitting here laughing about the first episode with uh, the Jackson Five, where they said Michael Jackson really was a um, really was an alien. Uh, he was the one abusing the entire family. Shout out to, shout out to Black Dynamite. Yeah, so moving along, yeah. doing your thing. You got the the straight to DVD movies, man, popping up everywhere. 2016, you make a appearance on Donald Glover's Atlanta, which is you know. An amazing written show, an amazing cast. How was it being on Atlanta with Donald and Brian and Lakeith Stanfield? So Donald Glover is a mad scientist. He is a mad, mad, mad scientist. Because the way that he does his show, you don't know what's going on. So I never, everything that I, I've been on a couple episodes, I never knew 
how it was going to be put together. And they don't tell you. So you're just like, you're, you're playing a character, and then when you see like, oh, shit, that's what it was? Like, it was crazy. Um, me and Lakeith Stanford, we, you know, we became really good friends um, through that. Um, Brian, I, I'm mad because I didn't know he was from Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, when I was filming. Um, but, yeah, man, Donald Glover, man, he's, he's such a mad scientist. He's such a genius. It, it, it was it was really great seeing it come together. You know, a lot of times, most of the time when I do projects, I see it. I, I see it how it comes to fruition, and, and I get it. But with his, I didn't. I couldn't see the end result until it came out. My like, oh snap! So you know, the episode that I was on, I think it's the one that won an Emmy. Um, it, it you know it was one of their biggest episodes, and then I I did a couple episodes, other episodes. So yeah, he's great. Donald Glover is is, is amazing. Yeah, dope cast, too. And, you know, I got to agree. Um, I think one of the things that I enjoy about, I enjoy about, I enjoy about Atlanta, excuse me, is that, in my opinion, I think that um, he just lets Brian, Tyree Henry, and Lakeith Sample just shine with the acting. And I think he, it's not that he holds back, but I think that Brian and Lakeith are stronger actors on the show. Yeah. Donald just lets him to shine, and you he, he can just tell how much they've been working, you know, since Atlanta, and now everyone's like, Lakeith, 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 and I'm like, man, that dude's been doing his thing since short-term 12. Like, you know, you guys are just kind of familiar with this cat. Yeah. I mean, Lakeith's the future acting, because that dude, man, every role you see him, and he's totally different. Yeah. Like a chameleon. Shout out to Lakeith, shout out to Brian Tyree Henry. Yeah. Uh, so recently... Your current project is my favorite author, Carl Weber, season two of the highly addictive book series, The Family Business, where you portray Kennedy, security, and limo driver to the Duncan family. Man, you're yeah. asking with Ernie Hudson, Valerie Pitford, Darren DeWitt Henson, Michael Jai White, just um, Tammy Romaine, Miguel A. Nunez Jr., just an amazing cast, and man, season one was cool, but season two on BET Plus, when I say I binged that joint like in two or three days, man, it was it's so ridiculous. addictive. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so prior to landing the role, had you read it, uh, any of Carl's books? So no. So what happened was a couple, about maybe five years ago, maybe longer than that actually, uh, when he had the book The Family Business. Um, Preston Whitmore, who's an incredible director, was shooting like the trailer for the book, and so he wanted me to be in it. And so we were trying to get our schedule together. I was I I, I was filming something. I can't remember what it was, but it was just really hard for me to connect with him and a lot of different things. So I read some of it, but I get it, I didn't get a chance to be on the cover of of his book. And then it came back to the movie. Well. The family business became a movie first. We shot it as a movie, and BET loved it and turned it into a series. That's why season one was what it was. We shot, you know, the first four episodes was the movie, and then we had to kind of scramble and get the rest of the episodes and kind of fill it out to a series. Um, So this one, season two, we had Carl and the crew had time to just really sit back and really, you know, 
tinker with it and make it really tight and add different characters. And it's, you know, this season is ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Oh, yeah, man. And, like, the folks that he casts are so um, so spot on with the, you know, someone somebody reads the books. The casting yeah. is so spot on with the books, especially um, Valerie Pitford as a chippy. Mm-hmm. Dude, when I... When I say the way she drug um, Donna, who Lisa Ray portrays, with uh-huh. only, like, point, it's a book. Yeah, man, great show. Family Business, folks. If you guys haven't seen that, check it out on BET+. Definitely. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization, MORPH, and what the acronym stands for? Um, so the Movement Opposing Racial Profiling and Harassment. That's what MORPH stands for. So in 2013, uh, I was traveling with a young lady uh, to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. We saw a, a cotton field. She'd never seen one before. We pulled over to look at it, take pictures, and these two police officers came and harassed us, handcuffed us, and just really violated us. And so um, it, you know, I've, growing up black, <laughs> I've had, you know, interactions with police officers living in New York and different places, but this is somehow different because, you know, my life was definitely in jeopardy and it wasn't just me. It was also a black, black woman. So I started a foundation to try and help, you know, uh, get the word out and, and, and give understanding um, of what to do when you're, you're approached by police officers and, you know, with this whole, Thing that's going on right now um, is so apropos with, with the George Floyd situation, you know, um, and it's just Breonna Taylor. It's just, you know, we're we're really seeing how prevalent police brutality is. And thank God for, you know, f- camera phones. You know, I didn't. My incident wasn't videotaped. But thank God for camera phones for George Floyd so, you know, the other people can see that we're not playing the victim. We are the victim. We are being harassed and targeted strictly based on the color of our skin. Yep, totally agree. And, you know, I think for me, I think one of the biggest things that I find bothersome was that, you know, it took George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and countless others for some folks to finally, like, get it. And it should never been, you know, like that. And my mindset is if you would just sit down and actually try to have dialogue with people and understand why things are the way they are, why, you know, we see the stuff the way that we do, you know, it would help a whole lot more. Just because you don't understand what somebody's going through or mm-hmm. you don't understand their struggle doesn't mean you can't be sympathetic to it. Exactly. You know, for me, I always talk about the, um, the pay gap between men and women to where, you know, in my profession, I know tons of women that can outwork me, but for whatever reason, I'm always going to pay more than they are, and that's not fair, but I totally yeah. acknowledge that. So not to get too deep in that, you know, because I could talk about hours for that, you know, I just wanted to, you know, the folks to hear about more. So before we close out, man, you know, I got to hit you with some more 
hard questions, two big joints you got to put on your uh, thinking cap. So as an MC, I got to ask you, man, who are your top five MCs of all time? Not currently, but just the top five that you listen to on the regular. Oof, of all time. That's tough to break it down, just the, the five. But I'll just throw some out there. Um, Biggie, um, his music is timeless. I love Biggie. Um, Jay-Z. Um, people are going to really have some issues with this, but Drake. Uh, I think Drake has has had the game in a the stranglehold. There's some of his music that I love. I love, you know, music. Um, Rakim. Rakim was one of my favorite MCs. Um, and my fifth one, ooh, that's so tough. That's so tough to give that fifth spot to someone. Um, oh, man. I, I, I'll go in a whole different tip. I'll say Q-tip. I'll say Q-tip. But I, I don't know, under 3,002. I don't know. It's like uh, Q-tip for the backpackers, but Andre 3,000. I'm sorry, Tip. I got to put Andre in there. Andre is a supreme lyricist. Yeah, you know, man, for me, I, I go back and forth from, like, my top five. I mean, it's like, you know, I have usually, like, you know, I got Biggie, I got Jay, I got um, Kane, Rakim, mm-hmm. and that fifth one, like, you know, I slot. sometimes it's going to be LL, sometimes it's going to be Busta, sometimes it's going to be Redman, you know. Yeah. It's, it's always hard to narrow it down. And what I say is, for me, when I say, like, my top five is people that I listen to on the regular. Yeah. Now, just because, you're in my top, just because you're not in my top five, that doesn't mean, you know, that you're a trash artist. It's just, like, I don't play you on the regular. You're not going to yeah. be in my top five. It's not, a, it's not saying that I don't respect your skills. Like, Eminem is not in my top. Hell, Eminem is not even, like, my top 15 because I don't listen to him yeah. on the regular. But don't yeah. I mean, this immensely talented yeah but i don't listen to him on the regular so it's like he's not in my top 15 it's like i bump heavy d more than i bump eminem so yeah i'm ahead uh, of a bit ahead of eminem but shout out to eminem and everyone else that we was talking about you know hip-hop is thomas music all right so this last tough question you portrayed d-rock already but if you could portray anyone in a biopic as the lead, who would you pick and why? Um, oh, um, Paul Robeson. So Paul Robeson was a pioneer. He was one of those guys who did everything from uh, incredible athlete, um, sung like opera, um, uh, revolutionary, like he just did it all. Genius. He was one of those guys that just encompassed everything. And, you know, he got shitted on in the industry. He fought through it, but he was a strong black man and, like, it has to be him. Paul Robeson. Cool. You're the second person telling me that they love to see something on. Um... Paul Robeson, and I really don't think we put enough respect on um, Paul's name just for the reasons you mentioned, and I don't think folks really know what he accomplished, you know, in theater and in 
just from NACA standpoint. So Hollywood, let's get something on uh, Paul Robeson. Sorry, my man, Dennis L.A. White. All right, yeah, folks, I'm, I'm going to thank you. I'm going to probably, you know, I need to start writing a, a screenplay for it. You know, today in the industry, we have the opportunity to do our own projects. You know, so um, you know, I've, I've been directing projects and writing. So I mean, I'm 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 going to get on. Tr- maybe I'll be the one to put it out. More power to you, man! And thank you for um, thank you for saying what you just said about um, doing your own projects and everything. And as a film person, you know, I'm a I'm a published film critic. Um, I'm doing the podcast and doing the reviews and everything. And just the way that this COVID attacked us. Entertainment, as we know, is totally about to change. You know, if we ever get back to normal, I don't foresee us getting back to normal anytime soon. This is the new normal. And, um, you know, with the versus battle, with just people doing quick little monologues and all that, you know, entertainment is is, going to change. So I feel like when I talk to I have a company called Act Like You Know, where I teach acting classes and workshops. Um, I've had to really transition to do it through Zoom, and so I've been teaching acting classes through Zoom in my private coaching. Yeah, and like I said, it's um, it's so many ways now to get stuff out there and to um, pretty much do it yourself and keep you know your grind going on. I mean, I know you know how hard it was as an MC, me to draw to make the album, but cats now mm-hmm. now in their in their man caves or in their basements, yeah. and with the quickness and dropping stuff like in a week. So, folks, don't give up on your dreams. You know, if you want to pursue this thing of entertainment or art, just get out there and do it now. You'd be surprised how far you can go by just doing stuff yourself. So, I want to thank Mr. White for taking time out of his busy schedule to chop it up with reviews and done. Check out this brother's work. Um, just type his name in. What I do is I go to imdb.com, I'll type in an actor's name, and just look at how impressive Mr. White's filmography is and check out his, his brother's work. I highly urge you guys to check out Changing the Game if you've never seen that. Go check out The Brave one, which I'm going to revisit. And where can fans find the social media? And is there anything you'd like to add? No, um, thank you guys for, for supporting my career. You know, I couldn't have done it without the fans and, and people that really like good acting and good film work. Um, you can find me at, at Dennis L.A. White. That's Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you're interested in private or taking uh, my classes, it's actlikeyouknow.org. And, you know, sign up for our next class that we have coming up in a couple weeks. All right, folks. Well, we've had Mr. Dennis L.A. White on the line, and as always, I'm going to close this quote out. I'm going to close this interview out with a quote. Fear dominates most people's lives. Fear of loss, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of loneliness. 50 Cent. Until the next time, done out. Tune in next week for another episode of Reviews and Done with your suave host, Derek Dunn.